0: We're going to start a series in the book of Philippians for a while. Uh, I've been thinking of doing the book of Philippians for a while now, and uh, a group of ladies here just studied the book of Philippians, and it got me thinking about it again. And uh, I think our students were doing some study in Philippians. Is that right, Brian? You were digging into. What's that? Soon. Soon. Perfect timing then. So, um, yeah, it has me thinking about this ancient letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. Uh, Most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter. Paul was one of the early Christians. Uh, He used to persecute Christians, and then he had this dramatic conversion experience where he came to Jesus, and uh, he started telling other people about Jesus. And uh, Paul, at the time of writing this letter, is in prison. And uh, most people believe it's when he was in prison in Rome. And that this letter was written somewhere around uh, the year 62 AD. And so uh, Paul is in prison, and he's writing this letter. Paul wrote a number of letters throughout his life to different churches in the first century, many of them churches that he had started. Uh, He had traveled the Roman world, and he had started a number of churches. Uh, And so Paul is writing to one of these churches that he has ministered to in the city of Philippi. And uh, if I can have the map, you can see where Philippi, just to orient yourself geographically where Philippi is located there uh, north of Athens. And so uh, Paul's writing to this small group of Jesus followers. Philippi uh, was made into a Roman colony about a hundred years. Before uh, Paul wrote this letter, um, a guy named Octavius, who later became known as Caesar Augustus, uh, took control of Philippi, and he made it into a Roman colony. And, and so there was heavy Roman influence in Philippi at the time Paul is writing this letter to the the small group of Jesus followers and so if the if the name Caesar Augustus rings a bell uh, in Luke 2 we hear about Caesar Augustus in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world this is uh, when Jesus was born Augustus was Caesar now when Paul is writing uh, Nero is Caesar and it's uh, a good 60 years later after Jesus was born And so there is this small group of Jesus followers in the midst of this city, Philippi. Uh, Most people believe there are around 10,000 people living in Philippi at this time. And so if you want to follow along, we're going to start in Philippians 1. And the letter begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, the beginning of this letter uh, indicates that Paul and Timothy are together uh, writing this letter. as we continue reading through the letter, we see it's primarily written in the first person and that it's primarily Paul's voice here. But Paul is passionate about community. Paul is passionate about doing things with other people. And so he, he's saying, I'm with Timothy here. And ultimately, Timothy is going to be sent to Philippi. And he, sa- he says, we are servants of Christ Jesus. We are servants. This is how he opens the letter. Now, most of Paul's letters begin by... Paul saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But not this letter. This letter begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And Paul is tapping in to this ancient idea that humans were created to be servants, to serve. Uh, And this goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. The Hebrew words there are abod and shamar. Abod to work it is literally to serve. Shamar is literally to protect. And so the original vocation God places on the first humans are to abod and shamar, to serve and protect. To serve. And protect. This is the original human vocation, to serve. Why? Because this is what is part of being image. Part of being image of God is to serve. All through the scriptures, we see that God is one who serves. And so, of course, He's going to create humans in His image, in His likeness, to be people who serve. At our core, something about the core of who God created us to be are people who serve, and Paul's tapping into this when he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Fast forward all the way to the time of Jesus, and Jesus says these words, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why does Jesus here say he came? To serve. To serve serve and to ultimately, out of self-giving love, give his life as a ransom for others. As a servant, he gives his life away. Uh, We'll get into this a whole lot more when we dig into Philippians 2, which this uh, beautiful poem that Paul writes about Jesus as a servant and becoming one of us. Uh, Paul says... At our very core, we're servants. So as servants of Christ Jesus, we're writing to you. Servants. What does it look like to be servants? When you look around this room, you're looking at fellow servants of Christ Jesus. What does it look like to be a servant in your life? What does it look like to be a servant in your home? What does it look like to be a servant at school? What does it look like to be a servant in the workplace? What does it look like to be a servant in the marketplace? What does it look like to be a servant on the soccer field? What does it look like to be a servant in the context you find yourself in? This is just simply a part of what it is means to be created in the image of God. It's simply a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to serve, to be a servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, literally, God's holy people here is one word in the Greek, and it's the word saints. So Paul says, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. We are servants, and we are saints. We are servants, and we are saints. Uh, Look around the room. You're looking at servants, and you're looking at saints. Uh, Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a servant and a saint. Okay, now I'm gonna make it more difficult. If I didn't make you uncomfortable already, now I'm gonna make it more difficult. Turn to the person next to you and say, I am a servant and a saint. All right, uh, do you believe that? Do you believe it? Uh, We are servants and we are saints. We are servants, and we are saints. I, I wonder what it looks like to be a servant and a saint for you. Uh, I wonder what it looks like to be a servant and a saint when you talk about politics. <laughs> I heard there's an election coming up this week. Just heard it. Uh, Servants and saints, no matter who your nominee is, no matter what your politics are, no matter whether you lean left or lean right, you are a servant and you are a saint. What does that look like when we engage in political discourse? What does it look like? in our homes, what does it look like in our schools, what does it look like in our workplaces to be servants and to be saints. And it's not just servants and saints, is it? It's servants of who? Christ Jesus. And saints in Christ Jesus. Paul's, Paul's making a very clear statement here. Jesus is the Messiah, and it's him who we represent in the world as servants. It's him who we are rooted and binded in love in as saints. We are in Christ as we serve in his name. Servants and saints. We are united with Christ somehow, beautifully, mysteriously. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we represent the risen Christ to the world as his servants. You're a servant, and you're a saint. Paul is writing this small group of Jesus followers in the context of imperial Rome in the context where it's illegal to be a christian paul says you are servants of christ jesus and you are saints in christ jesus at philippi and so he's localizing them in christ jesus but also in a physical place in philippi in the first century under roman imperial rule under nero who says, he is Lord, and there is no other. Within that context, where you find yourself, in Philippi, you are a servant and a saint of Christ Jesus. Uh, This idea of being in Christ is not otherworldly. It's right here, right now. We are servants of Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus in Marin. Right here. This place in this time. This isn't something that will take place in another life, in the afterlife, or it's right here. Right now. We are servants and we are saints in Christ Jesus, in Marin. If you work in the city, a servant and a saint, every time you cross that bridge, in Christ Jesus. In the city, in Marin, in the Bay Area, in the United States, in the world. We're servants and we're saints in Christ Jesus in a specific place and time, right here, right now. Together with the overseers and deacons, these are simply offices held in that local church. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. This is how Paul opens his letters. This is how Paul closes his letters. He talks about grace and peace. We've talked about this here before, this idea that uh, Paul is passionate that God's people, God's church, would be a people of grace and peace. He's drawing uh, grace from the Greek idea of charis, and he's drawing peace from the Hebrew idea that we talked about last week, shalom. Shalom. Things as they ought to be. Being in right relationship with God, others, self, and the earth. Grace. Grace and peace to you Uh, what does it look like to be a person of grace and peace grace and peace in your conversations in your homes in the workplace in your school what does it look like to be a person of grace and peace to everyone, to recognize everyone as created in the image of God. Children, to show grace and peace to your parents. Parents, to show grace and peace to your children. Showing grace and peace to that image bearer at work. Showing grace and peace to that image bearer at school. Yes, even the very annoying one grace and peace, grace and peace. I I believe deep down we passionately long to live into this. Uh, But but then it it, it often seems like uh, we just play by different rules on social media. Uh, The idea of servant and saint, grace and peace, All I have in front of me is a screen rather than a human being, so these things get thrown out the window sometimes, don't they? What does grace and peace look like on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, whatever social media thing of choice you may have? What does it look like to show grace? and peace because you are a servant and a saint in Christ (coughs) Jesus. Uh, The political discourse, the rhetoric we've seen over the past several months, it it feels like it's at an all-time low, doesn't it? Uh, What does it look like for the church to be different? And when we talk about these things, and we should talk about them, they're important. And and it's important to be passionate about your position. And it's important to be engaged in in public life, our common life together. I mean, that's what politics is, the polis. It's our common life together. It's important to engage in these things. But it's important to do so with grace and peace, grace and peace. What if our culture lived into these words from another letter Paul wrote? He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful. In other words, what is encouraging. I wonder what our culture would be like if we just just said, just just this verse. Let's just live by that verse and see what would happen. If if every word out of our mouth, if every post, if every response to a post uh, was helpful, if it was helpful, if it was encouraging, if it was lifting others up. Building others up. Uh, Paul continues and says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be kind and compassionate to one another. I wonder for you if uh, the Thanksgiving table this year will just be awkward. Because you have that one uncle who his political views are just so diametrically opposed to yours. And what if you went in and sat down at that Thanksgiving table with a posture of grace and peace and the commitment to being kind and compassionate. This way of living that Jesus invites us into uh, doesn't mean that we're all going to have the same views, and we're all going to look alike, and we're all going to be alike. Uh, That's the beauty of diversity. What it does mean is that somehow, by God's grace, in our lives, we can have unity without uniformity. We can have unity without being all alike. And that's okay. It's okay. Because we're servants and saints in Christ Jesus living a life of grace and peace, desiring to be kind and compassionate. Then Paul continues, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, this to me is just so beautiful. Paul affirms, first of all, who we are. We're dearly loved children who are called to walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, This is... The way of jesus it's the way of love it's the way of grace and peace it's the way of kindness and compassion it's the way of being a servant and a saint it's the way of giving ourselves away as jesus gave himself away as a sacrifice a fragrant offering to god uh, this isn't an easy path but it's a good path. It's good. And it's so much better than the rhetoric that we see all around us every day. It is possible. It is possible to live as servants and saints of grace and peace in Christ Jesus, to be kind and compassionate even today. Paul's writing to a small group of Jesus followers 2,000 years ago under Roman imperial rule. And he's saying it's possible to be a servant and a saint under Nero. It's possible to live with grace and peace under Nero. It's certainly possible for us today to do the same. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in two verses, Paul mentions Jesus. Twice, he calls him Christ Jesus or Messiah Jesus. This is a statement that Jesus is the one, the long awaited one that Israel has been waiting for. He is the Messiah. But then at the end of verse 2 he calls him Lord Jesus Christ. You know what this is? It's a political statement. Paul is making a political statement to this small group of Jesus followers in the 1st century. Because in Rome under the empire of Rome there is but one lord and it is Caesar. And if anyone says, there is another Lord, they could be killed for it. And in the midst of first century Rome, Paul makes a political statement. And he calls Jesus Lord. From Paul's perspective, there is but one Lord. And it's not Caesar. It's Jesus. As I've talked with a lot of people over the last several months about the election, one thing uh, kind of rises to the top, and it's anxiety. A lot of anxiety. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to our country? Uh, Paul says, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. I wonder where our anxiety comes from and where we're putting our trust and our hope and our faith. Because it certainly can't be in a political candidate. It can't be in a political party. It can't be in the Supreme Court. It can't be in anything but the one Lord. And that's Jesus. It can't be in our job, it can't be in our home, it can't be in our money, it can't be in our 401k. It can only be in the one Lord. And that is Jesus. I I wonder for us this morning if we could proclaim Jesus as Lord and then just fill in the blank. What for you is causing anxiety. What for you uh, has in some way become Lord? And you need to proclaim in your heart this morning that that thing or that person or that institution is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. When we come to this table and and take this bread and dip it in this cup together as a part of our common life together, uh, we're doing a number of things, but one thing we're doing is we're making a political statement. And that political statement we're making when we take this bread and dip it in this cup is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for us. And Jesus rose again, and Jesus is Lord, and nothing else is. Jesus is. This is a part of our polis, a part of our common life together, that we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus together as a community when we come to this table and dip this bread in this cup. We say, Christ's body was broken for you. Christ's blood was shed for you. Thanks be to God. Jesus is Lord. God, this morning, this morning more than ever, we need to trust and believe that you are Lord. I pray that you would shape us and form us in the way of Jesus to live with great hope, to live with great trust. God, this morning as we partake of the bread and the cup, fill us anew. Give us great confidence in the work you've accomplished on our behalf, on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. Remind us anew, God, that we have your very spirit living within us. That there is nothing to fear. We're invited to walk in the way of love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. God, make us a people this morning of grace and peace. Remind us that we are servants and saints make us a people of love and forgiveness, kindness and compassion. People who bring your hope and your healing into every area of our lives. It's in the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen.